0: I wanted to uh, remind you that we are going through a series on the book of Judges, and today we're going to be in Judges 3, uh, verse 31. Just one verse today that we will be studying. This week I was doing some reading, and I came across a pastor Uh, historically, that I didn't know anything about. And so I found myself uh, in this reading project doing some reading about him, and I was struck by his example and by how God used him. His name is Lemuel Haynes. It's very likely that you've never heard of him. He was born in 1753, and he was abandoned by his parents at five months old. Uh, he was taken in by a godly family, providentially, that brought him into their home. They were Christians, the Rose family, and they raised him. Uh, the father in the Rose family was a deacon known as Deacon Rose, and so he raised young Lemuel to know the scriptures. From a young age, he had a appetite for the scriptures. Well, he grew up older, he volunteered, and served as a soldier in the American Revolutionary War. Uh, He got typhus and ultimately was relieved of his duty in 1776. But after the war, he uh, began to study theology. He was self-taught, reading uh, much. He was largely influenced by the Great Awakening in the 1740s, so he read a lot of that. And uh, he ultimately then was uh, tutored by a couple of Connecticut clergymen, And in 1785, he was ordained to ministry. Lemuel Haynes was known as a man who preached sermons with great urgency, calling people to salvation. Some speculate it's because uh, he lived with eternity in view. As a young boy, he had a couple of brushes with death. He almost drowned one time while bathing in a river, and at another time he almost died from being gored by an ox as a kid. So he lived with this eternal perspective that influenced uh, his preaching ministry. Well, after his ordination, he served as a pastor for 40 years. He married Elizabeth Babbitt, and they had 10 children together. So he, he pastored for 40 years. 30 years of his pastorate was in Rutland, Vermont. Now, that was amazing that he stayed in one church. That was unusual, and pastored for 30 years in Rutland, Vermont, but there was something more interesting, more unusual about the fact that he stayed there 30 years. You see, Lemuel Haynes was a black man, and this church, including his wife, was entirely made up of white people. That would be uncommon, sadly, uncommon today. But that would be absolutely unheard of in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Lemuel Haynes was the first black man ordained by any religious body in the United States of America. And I read about him because I was reading about uh, some black leaders Uh, given that this is Black History Month. And Haynes, like so many of the people we read about in Black History Month, was an outsider who overcame significant odds to make a difference. He was used by God to accomplish something great, even though he had little natural equity in his cultural surroundings. And in many ways, when I read his story, I thought this is the story of God's redemption. It's the story of how God always works in the Bible. God uses unexpected people to accomplish unexpected things so that he receives the glory. And while it's certainly not unexpected that Lemuel Haynes would be a faithful, godly minister, it is unusual and unexpected that he would pastor the people he did, given the racial dynamic of his day. I I read his uh, gravestone. He wrote the words of his own gravestone, and this is what it says. "'Here lies the dust of a poor, hell-deserving sinner who ventured into eternity trusting wholly on the merits of Christ for salvation.'" In the full belief of the great doctrines he preached while on earth, he invites his children and all who read this to trust their eternal interest on the same foundation. He writes, This is the dust of a hell deserving sinner who ventured into eternity, trusting wholly, W H O L L Y, wholly on the merits of Christ. Isn't that powerful? trusting wholly in Christ and trusting Christ to be faithful to bring deliverance even in his death uh, to those who might read his gravestone. God uses unexpected people to do unexpected things to bring his mercy to people and the story we're going to read today in a single verse is about one such man. This is the story if you can call it that, of Shamgar, from Judges 3, verse 31. This is God's holy word to us. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. That's it. That, that's the whole passage that we're going to read today. That's all we find out about the next judge in the book of Judges. Shamgar, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. Shamgar? More like ShamWow. Can you imagine what this guy did, what God did through him? i want to talk about the mystery of God in this single verse, starting with the fact that this is a mysterious man. He appears out of nowhere. He gets a single verse, and then he disappears. He's only mentioned here and over in chapter 5, verse 6, where it says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. That's it. So we hear, we read what he did, and then the next chapter we read, uh, you know, uh, that in his days just simply the days of Shamgar. So we really don't have much data to go on uh, to, to know who this guy is and what he really did. But there is scholarly consensus that he probably was not an Israelite this is fascinating. Uh, first of all, his name, the structure of his name is not written like a Hebrew name. It is written, we'll, I'll spare the details, but it's written in a different way. So it, it's, it's not, it uh, doesn't have the characteristics of a Hebrew name. And perhaps more importantly, he's referred to as the son of Anath. Anath is a feminine name. Almost everybody's named uh, the son of, and it gives their dad's name, but this is a feminine name, and it's the name of the goddess of war. So this guy who doesn't have a Hebrew name is named after a pagan goddess. It could be that that's his mom's name and she was named, you know, after the goddess or it could be that that, uh, he's just referred to in some way connected to this goddess. Now he may certainly believe in the God of the Bible, Yahweh, that certainly may be the case, but He doesn't have the name or he doesn't have the label of a good Jewish boy. He doesn't sound like uh, someone who comes from faithful uh, Israelite stock. He's a mysterious man. And the second thing we see is that he fights a mysterious battle. We don't know anything about how God raised him up. Now, if you've been tracking with us in this Judges series, every week I put up a a circular diagram that tells us the Judges cycle. There is no cycle. We don't know what's going on. He just shows up and brings deliverance. Here's what we know about him. He also saved Israel. He saved Israel. Now, his account uh, appears between last week's account we studied, the story of Ehud. It, 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 it uh, occurs between Ehud. We have Ehud and then uh, in verse 30 it says, the land had rest for 80 years. Then we have Shamgar killing 600 Philistines with an ox goad. <clears throat> and then chapter 4, verse 1, we have the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So we have Ehud, Ehud's victory, 80 years of peace, then a statement about Shamgar, and then Ehud's death. So he is evidently raised up during this 80-year period of peace, and likely he reinforces that peace by defeating some 600 Philistines. This is the first mention that we find of the Philistines, but they're going to be a constant threat, for the next 200 years, all the way to the time of King David. You may remember that Goliath, uh, after all, was a Philistine, Goliath of Gath. Now, we're going to find a lot more about the Philistines when we get to Samson in a few chapters, but they are a problem for Israel. Here's the thing about them. They arrived in Canaan about the same time that Israel did. They settled in a different area, but they showed up at about the same time, and they were a formidable force against Israel. And one of the things they were known for was their technological advances. It may sound kind of funny to use such language to describe the Philistines, but they had technological war advances because they had the new skill, the new human skill of iron smelting. So that meant they were able to build iron chariots. And so they had a distinct advantage against all the other people they fought who were foot soldiers, but not a distinct advantage against Shamgar, the son of Anath. We don't know how Shamgar meets the Philistines. We don't know how he gets in this brawl with 600 of them, but perhaps the oddest thing, the strangest thing about the whole account is his weapon. Uh, He he isn't outfitted like a professional soldier. He doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have a spear. He's not like the guy we read about last week, Ehud, who crafts his own 18-inch dagger and straps it to his thigh and hides it so that he can do his sort of secret uh, assassination. He doesn't have anything like that. The guy's got a long pointed stick. That's what he has for a weapon. A few weeks ago, Uh, Rob preached this great sermon where he did this visual illustration about an orange. Maybe you remember that. How could you forget? Uh, And about how digging into the Bible is like digging into an orange. And if you can get past past the peel, it's, uh, you know, juicy and tasty and uh, nourishing. So he, he did that. And at the end, he gave everybody an orange on the way out. So I was set to give everybody an ox goad on the way out. I'm sorry we're iced out, so you don't get it. Uh, until I found out that an ox goad is eight feet long. So it's an eight foot long stick. I thought, okay, we're probably not gonna be able to give that out. And it's pointed at the end, because what it's used as is to prod sort of the butt of the oxen, to sort of poke them so that they will do their work. If they get lazy, you goad them, you prod them, you goad the oxen, hence the name ox goad. And uh, so it's an eight foot stick, Pointed on one end, and on the other end, it's kind of got like a, uh, I I don't know, like a paddle or a uh, sort of like a, uh, uh, something that could be used to scoop, a spade. That's the word I'm looking for. It's kind of like a spade so that they could take the plow and they could, you know, get the dirt off it. They could use it to dig the mud off the plow so that it would work. So Shamgar, probably more detail than anybody needed, but Shamgar, uh, he is probably not a trained soldier. He's a farmer. He's a farmer with a stick, and he beats 600 of the, you know, cutting-edge, trained, uh, technologically advanced warriors, the Philistines. It's a mysterious battle. And and it ultimately points to the mysterious ways of God. A mysterious man, a mysterious battle, the mysterious ways of God. The hymn writer William Cooper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. That's a repeated lesson in the book of Judges, is that God rescues his people in mysterious ways. And I couldn't just move past this verse. I wanted to camp on it because it makes the point as strongly as anywhere in the book of Judges. Here is an unlikely man. with an unlikely weapon, doing the unexpected, defeating the enemies of God, and, quote, saving Israel. He also saved Israel, the text says. Dale Davis, the scholar, writes of this passage. He says, do we not see here the very glory of Israel's God? And it is particularly the glory of God to save by instruments unknown or scarcely known to us. We don't know anything about Shamgar, and yet he saved God's people. There is something marvelous about a God like that. Something that compels us to bow down before the one who uses Shamgar's and ox goads. There's something about the passage that says we don't get the detail, and that, that magnifies that this is the very work of God himself. The verse points to us, this points out to us, that it, it's not just the person that God uses, but it's the weapon that God uses as well. I mean, the original readers, when they see Philistines, you're supposed to think, ooh, scary Philistines with their chariots and their power. They're fearful. And you're supposed to think, ox are you kidding me? A poker for an ox? That's all the guy's got? You're supposed to read it that way and say, how can this be? It's it's an unimpressive, unknown guy with an unimpressive weapon who does a mighty work in saving God's people. Matthew Henry writes of this passage, it's no matter how weak the weapon if God directs and strengthens the arm. And ox goad, when God pleases, shall do more than Goliath's sword. And sometimes he chooses to work by such unlikely means that the excellency of the power may appear to be of God. What he's saying is God works this way so it's clear that it was God who did the work. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the book of Judges. That's the whole point of the Bible is that God saves. Jonah says salvation is of God. We all need rescuing and God is the one who provides rescue. In the book of Judges, Israel repeatedly falls into idolatry. They limit Yahweh, their God. They don't see him as all-powerful. They see him as limited and they see these other gods in the lands as good options to get what they need. And so when God comes in and acts in these sort of uh, unusual ways, using unusual means and unexpected people, he, he shows his omnipotence and he shatters. The idea that some other gods can deliver. He shows that He alone is the one that rescues His people. And so, repenting of idolatry is really about affirming what this verse teaches that God has incomparable power, that God has faithful character to love and rescue His people. And He does so by His providence in unusual and unexpected ways because that puts his power on display. I I won't take the time to walk through the whole Bible, but the story of Shamgar really is the story of the Bible. This really is how God works. Unexpected people, unexpected ways to bring salvation. I mean, think all the way back to Abraham. He calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to make a people and give you a land and all the world will be blessed through you. Well, Abram is, uh, at the time he's Abram, he's not a believer in Yahweh. He doesn't know Yahweh. He is a polytheist who lives in the center of moon worship. He's likely a moon worshiper, Uh, not a likely person to bring salvation to the nations, very unlikely. And he's certainly not likely to uh, create a people for his wife is infertile. They can't have children, but that's who God comes to pick to use for his purposes. Think about you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's a deceiver. He's a mess, and yet God works with him and uses him and shows that God's power triumphs, that he, uh, he is faithful even when we as humans are faithless, which Jacob is at points. Think about Moses, the great deliverer. Moses kills an Egyptian and and is actually on the run. He he is is out in a desert uh, where he is, you know, had to run away from Egypt. uh, And that's where God calls him to return and be a great deliverer. And yet Moses, how can he be a great deliverer? He's a wanted man, and he doesn't feel like he can be a mouthpiece for God. He has a speech impediment, evidently. And yet that's who God uses to be the great deliverer of the Old Testament, Moses. Think about David, David the king. Uh, Jesus is called the son of David. That's a pretty strong mark in the Old Testament history, in the King David. And yet, when David is chosen as king, he doesn't even measure up. He doesn't even count as one of the sons. Samuel comes to, to find the sons of Jesse, to pick a son to anoint as king. and David isn't even presented. He's the, he's the little runt of a kid that's out you know, taking care of the sheep. He's a shepherd, and he's an afterthought. The whole point of David's choosing is, humanly speaking, he's an afterthought. But he's God's first thought. David, the king. And think about David. He does a lot of powerful things. He's certainly a man of God. And yet, David commits adultery. David murders, the, uh, ultimately kills, uh, doesn't directly murder, but uh, in effect kills uh, the, the uh, husband of Bathsheba, whom he uh, commits adultery, whom he takes advantage of, takes for his own. And kills her husband, and yet David is remembered as the great king. Jesus called the son of David. His sins didn't uh, didn't wipe him out. God had mercy upon him, and still used him. Think of that. That's astounding. Um, think about the prophet Elijah. Think about the mighty prophet Elijah that challenges the enemies of God. He is a man who struggles with depression. He thinks he is the only one. He despairs. He's a man at one point in the story that utterly despairs. And yet he's one of the greatest mouthpieces for God in all of the Bible. Think about the New Testament, the kind of people that Jesus chooses. He chooses a tax collector, uh, Matthew, to serve and to follow him, to write the book that we are reading. Uh, that, well, no, that was <laughs> what I read at Rise Up Weekend. Sorry, we're in Judges. I just had a little brain fade there. It's late. Um, it's late. Uh, at anyway, rate, uh, so he writes a New Testament book, the book of Matthew, the tax collector. Yet he is someone that is cheating his own people, that tax collectors were despised. as as people who cheated and stole from their own people and sold out to the Roman government. Yet Jesus chooses him uh, to be a follower and ultimately an author in the New Testament. Peter, James, and John, ordinary people. They're not scholars. uh, They're not priests. They're not teachers. They're just regular uh, fishermen. And yet these unschooled people are the ones that Jesus calls to himself and and, and commissions to to take the gospel to the nations, to change the world. Think about Paul. Paul is the chief persecutor of the church. Uh, Paul hates Jesus, hates the people of God. And yet uh, uh, Jesus appears to him and saves him and turns his life around so that he writes a big chunk of the New Testament and takes the gospel to the Gentiles. This is on and on and on and on. That God uses the ordinary, the outsider, the unlikely. He uses those like Paul who have a scandalous past for his purposes. It's clear that all glory goes to God alone. Nobody looks at Paul and says, well, that makes sense. He's killing Christians. That makes sense. No, they say this has to be God. Matthew, the tax collector, uh, sent and called by God, that has to be the Lord to change him. You, You get the point. Uh, think about first corinthians one chapter one this has always been a compelling passage to me this is what paul writes to the corinthians and he writes it to you and to me this god says this to us for consider your calling brothers not many of you were wise according to worldly standards not many were powerful not many were of noble birth but god chose what is foolish In the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring things uh, to nothing, things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then it goes on to say, as it is written, let no one boast. Let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the whole point, is that God does the rescuing so that God gets the glory so that we boast in God and God alone. Think about our Savior, Jesus. I mean, he comes as a lowly servant. He dies a brutal death. The King of kings comes, and his victory, his power is demonstrated in his sacrificial Death for our sins as our substitute in our place. And God raises him from the dead and exalts him to rule over all so that God receives all the glory. God is always the hero of the story, and that's why he uses shamgars and their ox goads to save his people. You know, really the good news of this story and the story of all the Bible is that God is faithful to save and that we are all candidates to be used by God. That's why I run through the story of the Bible. That's why I'm taking a whole morning on one verse of one obscure guy to make the point that no one is outside the reach of being used by God. God. And I wonder as you're watching this, uh, if you're one who's counted yourself out, if you're one who says, well, yeah, that's good for everybody else, but I don't think that God would ever really use me. You don't believe that God desires to use you. And I believe God wants to correct that false belief. I believe God wants to adjust your thinking to his way of thinking, knowing that God uses the least likely for the very reason that he may receive the glory. I want to ask you this morning, I mean, why is it that God can't use you? Why, why do you think that? Many of us do. Why is it that God won't use you? Is, is it because you don't know enough that you need to know more? If you know the basics of the gospel and are a Christian, God can use you with what you know today right where you are. See, we always want to be better prepared. We want to be, we want to know more. We want to have more gifts and more experience and be more seasoned. And what does that do? That just reflects on us so that it looks like we're the ones that made the difference. God would rather take the person who perhaps knows less but has a simple faith and a simple trust in him because through that person, God gets the glory. Maybe it's you don't know enough, as I said, or, or, or maybe it's there's something scandalous in your background that doesn't disqualify you from being used by God, as we saw. Maybe you say, well, I, I just think there's limitations in my life. I'm single. I'm divorced. I, I have challenges maybe in my marriage. I don't know that God would ever use me. That's not true. God takes our brokenness and our weakness and through our honesty and communicating our need for God and his faithfulness to us. God's strength is shown in our weakness as we honestly acknowledge the challenges in our lives. Maybe you feel like you're limited somehow by your gender. Maybe you feel like you're limited by your race. Maybe you feel limited by your accent or your appearance or your age i was just uh, as we've talked about spent the you know the weekend here with uh, the students the middle schoolers and high schoolers at rise up weekend and uh, one of the things that's so important for you to know as a young person is that you are not disqualified because you lack experience who else is going to reach middle schoolers but middle schoolers? Who else is going to reach high schoolers? Who else is going to reach college students? You are sent to the people of your age to communicate in your generation the truth of the gospel through a compelling witness of a changed life and the message of Christ. If you wait until you're have the adequate experience you won't have access to young people you won't be a young person anymore don't squander the days that god has given you you are not limited by your lack of experience on the other end of the spectrum there's people in our church that are older and you feel like you're you're limited by a lack of relevance you've got experience you say i'm a senior i'm old I, i've been around I've got some miles, okay? And you, you think I'm no longer <clears throat> relevant. I'm, I'm off to the side. Nobody needs what I have. Listen, wisdom is always relevant. Wisdom is always relevant. Don't, don't for a minute think that you are somehow relegated from being used by God because you are old. We need you. Those around you need you. The next generation and the generation following needs you. You, you, Whether you're young or whether you're old, we we simply need to offer ourselves and say, Lord, I know I have limitations, but, but all the more I look to you and I trust you. Make yourself available. Pray daily, Lord, would you use me in some way Today, Give me opportunities. Give me open eyes to see where you're opening doors for me to love, for me to serve, for me to sacrifice, for me to represent you, for me to speak, to give a word of encouragement, a word of testimony, a word pointing to you. Listen, the more unlikely you are in the eyes of our culture, the more likely you are in the kingdom of God. The more unlikely you are to be thought of as someone capable uh, in the culture, the more likely you are to be used by God in the kingdom. The kingdom works in an upside-down way. God is not looking for the wisest, most competent, most gifted individuals. He says to the Corinthians Not many of us were wise or noble or powerful. We're a bunch of nobodies. But that's who God uses because he is everything and wants the glory for his own. That's the whole point. God wants people to see him at work. God doesn't want anybody amazed by you. God wants them dazzled by his glory and his work and so that qualifies you to be used by him he uses us in spite of us he shows his strength in our weakness his power comes from our limitation god selects people that no one thought of no one thought of shamgar no one thought that eight foot stick that's a great weapon to wipe out 600 Philistines. nobody thought of it that's why it points to God and his power. Listen, if this is you today, I urge you to look to Christ and draw your identity in him. He's called you, he's chosen you, he desires to use you as you are. He's fashioned you for a purpose. And that's for you if you're a ninth grader today. That's for you if you're a retired senior today. That's for you if you have limited communication skills or a physical challenge, even a disability. That's for you. You may think you're unimpressive, but that's the platform that God works on. Unimpressive people so that others will be impressed by God. You're most likely to succeed in the mission of God if, in fact, you are unimpressive. Be available and watch him work because the goal is let no one boast in themselves, but we boast only in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with a quote from David Jackman, who's a commentator, and this is what he writes Uh, on this passage in his commentary on Judges. He says, unless we recover a healthy fear and awe of the power and sovereignty of God, we shall end up as idolatrous as everyone else. That is why God is constantly surprising us. No situation, however desperate, is beyond his retrieval. No individual can ever be written off in God's providence or written out of God's script God has not finished with any of us yet, and he is still a specialist in the most unlikely interventions of deliverance. That's the story that I began with. That's the story of Pastor Lemuel Haynes. That's the story of Shamgar and his ox code. That's the story of every individual in the scripture and in history that's ever been used by God. No one who's a believer in Jesus is beyond being used by God in surprising ways. Receive that word today. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would use each of us in the ways he chooses.